you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah 47. Just a reminder, the uh, scripture text is printed in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible with you, you don't see a pew Bible close by. Isaiah 47, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments, in your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror." You were wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction, there is no one to save you. Now, sins the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, our help in ages past, be our help right now. Give us ears to hear all that you have to say to your people. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're right, but God is speaking to his enemies. Don't forget that. None of you asked, but some of you might have been thinking, isn't this a bit intense? Uncomfortable? And you already heard my answer. You're right. But God is speaking to his enemies, to the enemies of God's people. It's, yes, hellfire and brimstone when you get to Verse 14, the rest of it's a bit tough too. There's judgment, but it's judgment upon God's enemies. Those who rampaged and pillaged Jewish civilians and deported them 
uh, or who would do that in the future from Isaiah's view, who enslaved the people. It's all rough, but also this is saying there is justice in the world. Those who oppress and afflict God's image bearers, they will be called to account. Those who try to rob God of his glory, they will be judged. And all of it is part of God's plan to destroy our false sense of security. The things we're tempted to look to for security and trust, safety. It's his plan to destroy those and to woo us back to true security. And where is that found? Only in God's Savior, who was to come back then, now has come, and will come again one day. This is a dirge or a taunt song, a victory song. And it takes place before Babylon ever conquered Judah, so that Israel would know, even as they walked the hard road to exile, that God had already won the ultimate battle. It was a done deal. They would go back home. They would have a hope in a future in the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Babylon might have dethroned Israel's king one day, but they didn't dethrone God. And one day, all that Babylon stood for, the pride, the self-deification, the ruthless treatment of others, all of that would be destroyed as well. Now that is getting slightly ahead of ourselves for now. Just know that God is just, that God will humble the proud, that God will draw his people to himself in the midst of the chaos and the crazy. We see that today in three points, and all of them tell us something about God. First, we see this. God is jealous for his glory and his people. God is jealous for his glory and his people, verses 1 through 7. Don't miss the forest for the trees. If you Get too caught up in the opening verses, you'll miss the reason for God's anger. It's both for his glory and for his people. You might remember chapter 46. God said, Bel and Nebo, those false gods of Babylon, they were dead weight. They were powerless to save. Well, now this chapter, he is addressing Babylon directly, not her gods. In verse 1, he says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, a synonym of sorts for, for those who lived in Babylon, another name for them. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. And remember when Isaiah wrote this, there's a very good chance Babylon had not yet conquered Israel, had not yet exiled God's people. And even before that, God announces Babylon's downfall. To sit in dust was a sign of humiliation. To not sit upon a throne was a a step down for where Babylon thought of themselves. You'll see that arrogance later on, but God is also going to remove all the reasons for their arrogance. Verse 2, take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. The, The millstone, the grinding flour stuff, this is the work of a slave. Passing through the rivers is an allusion to exile. I'm not certain that the Babylonians were ever exiled, but they were definitely conquered after they conquered Israel years later. Alec Moitier says of that event that took place a good hundred years after Isaiah wrote, Cyrus took Babylon effortlessly, and by morning every citizen of the empire was not a Babylonian, but a Persian. Thus the old order vanished under the just but merciful hand of God. And as for this 
stripping and uncovering. Does, does that mean what I think it means? Well, verse 3, your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Moitier explains that slaves were usually naked or close to it. And our ESV is it's fairly sanitized. Not wrong, just sanitized. The New English translation is more graphic. So the ESV's nakedness and disgrace, they might be euphemisms for private parts. Why be that graphic? Why does God seem to delight in humiliating Babylon and taking vengeance upon her? In part because of how they treated his people. Verses 5 and 6, God still speaking to Babylon. <clears throat> Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, that's Israel. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand, Babylon. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. God is allowed to be angry with his people. And by the way, he has an end in mind. He is ultimately hoping to draw us back. But don't you dare be the one who mistreats his people. Don't you dare fail to show them mercy. Don't you dare mistreat the elderly or the aged or those who can't fight back. No offense to those of you who are older than me, for example. Some of you might be thinking, hey, I might have a few years on you, but, but I can... Simmer down, please. The, the, point, the point is back then, the aged were commonly thought to be more defenseless, to mistreat them back then. This is roughly equivalent to pushing an old lady down as she crossed the street. The point is, the Babylonians were jerks. Moitier says they were pitiless, indiscriminate. They even mistreated the elderly. They were arrogant and they lacked any moral sense. He even alludes in this discussion to the just war doctrine, saying the, well, we were at war excuse does not nullify, does not justify any and all immoral actions. Also, they, they were jerks. We've covered that. They were arrogant jerks. I don't think that's redundant. They mistreated God's people, yes, but they also mistreated God. They were not reverent. They were blasphemers. They thought they were gods. Look at verse 7. You said, I shall be mistress forever so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. This word mistress, it implies a mighty one, a ruler, a queen even. They thought they were the master of their fate. They didn't lay any of these things to heart. Why should they? No one could touch them. They would rule forever. They were convinced that they were the secret to their success. They didn't see the circumstances or the sovereign God who was behind it all. Convinced that they deserve the glory, the privileges, and more. How do you think God felt about that? Especially because his people were in the crosshairs of their mistreatment. God says in verse 3, he will take vengeance. Not, not on his people Israel in this case. No, but on behalf of his people. He will not have pity on Babylon, verse 3, because they had no pity on his people, verse 6. And who, who is announcing this vengeance? Should they be scared? Well, hold that thought because it all reminds me. 
the movie Tombstone. It's not rated PG, for the record. The lawman Wyatt Earp is hunting down the men who murdered his younger brother. He starts with Ike Clanton, a weasel of a man who leads the cowardly gang known as the Cowboys. And he wounds Ike, but he lets him flee, but not before saying, you tell the others the law is coming. You tell them I'm coming and hell's coming with me. You hear hell's coming with me. I'm not going to steal any parts from Kurt Russell and that's okay, but that's all scary enough. When an angry man with a gun and a badge is saying something like that, but the one talking in verses 3 and 4 is even scarier for the bad guys. Verse 3, God says, I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Who's announcing vengeance now? It's the Redeemer who promises to purchase his people out of whatever pit they've fallen into. It's the Lord, the, the covenant Lord, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the angel armies, the embodiment of every possible potentiality and power, according to Moitier. Even more, he is the Holy One of Israel. Holy. So he has a right to execute vengeance. And he's the Holy One of Israel. So he can act on her behalf. What does all that tell us? One God is angry when others boast of what he alone can do. So be careful before you start bragging about anything. Number two, God may discipline his people. It's, it's right here. He might allow hardship to sanctify you. He might allow hardship to, to get your attention, to draw you away from some sin, some false God that you're trusting in. We could say much more about that, but God may discipline you, but God is also angry when others torment you. Do you see that? He's angry when others mistreat his people. He sees, he knows, and he will act. And his refuge is always better than his wrath. And he offers refuge to all who turn from sin and turn to their Savior. God is jealous for his glory and his people. Verses 1 through 7, you see that. He will be glorified. And he wants you, his people, to return to him. The second thing we see, God will crush all of his impersonators. God will crush all of his impersonators. Verses 8 through 11. In some ways, it's a continuation of the first point, but let's talk for a minute about the audience. Who is this word for? It's for Israel, right? For God's people? It's not so much a warning, a call to repent for Babylon as it is an announcement that Babylon will fall. And that's an encouragement that God's promises have not failed, that he has not forgotten his people. And this is a harsh word, but it is a word for us, God's people, if we have ears to hear it. You know, pastors sometimes, including me, hear this feedback. That was a great sermon. I wish my friend could hear it. Friend, mother, father, son, sibling, whatever. And when I'm on my game, you know what I say to that, right? Every sermon you hear is first and foremost for you. If you are arrogant, unkind, unmerciful, then you need to hear 
what God thinks of that sin. And we should all pray as we hear his word that we would hate our sin and love our Savior. Till our sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet, Thomas Watson said. And yet, this is still a victory song. And if we have named our sin and repented of it, if we have turned from sin and turned to Christ, if we have wept bitterly like Peter and longed for a second chance or a 70-second chance, whatever, then there is, there is comfort here too. If we've repented of our sin and crucified our sin, then we should be grateful that God will one day crush the unrepentant sinners in the world. It's okay to be grateful for that. We should be because God has hardwired us to want justice in the world. We should be grieved when we read words like verse eight. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. See, Babylon thought she was God true of the, the king as well as others in the kingdom. They thought they were secure. Now, is that because of their beauty? This word here, lovers of pleasure or pleasures, it could also mean something like voluptuous one. They also thought they were unique. Do you notice the middle of verse 8? I am and there is no other. It's also in verse 10. Imitating God, but not in a good way. <laughs> Impersonating, we might say more than imitating. You know, theologians for years have classified God's attributes as communicable and incommunicable. We also use those words to talk about diseases. That might be helpful here because there are certain attributes that God communicates or contagiously passes on to his people. Love, kindness, goodness, we have those, maybe uh, uh, definitely not in the same measure, in the same level of perfection as God, but we have them. And then there are incommunicable attributes, the attributes he does not share with his creatures like omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, infinity, or self-existence, or aseity, the, the holy other quality of God. Now, we are called to be holy and set apart, yes. But we will never be, we can never be truly independent. We are creatures who are dependent upon our creator. We always will be. Have you forgotten that? Have you despised that at times? Well, Babylon forgot. She was convinced that her evil schemes would thrive, verse 10 says, that she was untouchable, that she was all-wise, and how would God respond to this ungodly impersonation of him? Well, to the delight of her big victims, Babylon would experience what she said she would never experience. Verse 9, these two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. She said one verse ago, this will never happen. And don't miss the proverbial nature of what's going on here, of widowhood, of bereavement. In this society, they were feared conditions. They usually meant poverty. No husband to support you. No children to take his place. And even her sorcery, this 
type of false religion. That would do her no good. And after repeating some of her sins in verse 10, God announces more punishment in verse 11. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. This disaster, it'll be, quote, unheralded, inescapable, and unprecedented, says Moitier. Her security, her self-assuredness, they give way to loss. Despite her power, despite her self professed wisdom. And again, how should we process all that? Because this is intense stuff, isn't it? As we've already said, God is angry when others boast of what he alone can do. So be careful before you brag. Secondly, we said that God may discipline you, but God is always angry when others torment you. And what else? God promises to punish the unrepentant, but only after much patience. He promises to punish the unrepentant, but only after much patience. I think we conclude that from this second section here. You see, Israel would have to watch Babylon conquer them before any of God's vengeance came to pass. You may be in a similar place, not in the global geopolitics sense of it all. Maybe if you live in Ukraine or somewhere like that, but... You might be in a similar place personally. This person, whoever it is, was unfair to me. In fact, not just unfair, but unkind, arrogant, always wants more. Nothing is enough. I've, and, and I've searched my heart. I've repented of my part in this conflict, even though it feels sometimes like my part was 5%. His or her part was 95%. And right now, it just doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem like they've learned their lesson. Maybe there's been a confrontation, maybe not. Maybe they've taken the first steps of repentance, maybe not. It just doesn't seem fair. And this is where we need to ponder the significance of the future tense. I'm not going to go too grammar nerdy on you, just, just to warn you. But what have we been saying? We said God will crush all of his impersonators. God will punish the unrepentant, but only after much patience. Many of our problems, much of our anger, stems from the fact that we want justice now, on our time, not at the end of time when God promises it. Oh, oh yes, sometimes it does come quickly. Sometimes God humbles us or others in real time. Not always. We have no guarantee that this fallen world will be made right before he comes again. In fact, we should usually expect the opposite and rejoice when justice breaks forth. Have you ever heard me say this? We want forgiveness for our sins, but justice for their sins. How about this one? Not as catchy. We want justice now for the sins of others, but we want unlimited patience for our sins. Does that describe you? Sadly, me too. But God's patience is still a good thing, my friends. Think of, the, think of your least favorite version of yourself. The stuff you did that you were younger. Oh, that you just can't believe you did. Aren't you glad that God was patient with that knucklehead? 
His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, Romans 2 says. And his patience provides time for us to repent. 2 Peter 3 talks about it. And that same patience is the reason that the nightly news is always full of negative stuff. God is giving them and us a chance to repent, to turn from sin, to turn to our Savior. But patience doesn't undo the promise. God promises vengeance on Babylon and all those like Babylon. He promises it so that we might not lose heart. He promises that he will crush all of his impersonators. And then thirdly and finally, God exposes the emptiness of alternative saviors. Need to move quickly here. We do mean this somewhat literally because remember what we said in verses one through three. Babylon will be undressed. Shameful secret parts exposed. The parts that should only be seen in the context of a loving, committed marriage or, or maybe in a doctor's office, but certainly not by everyone. They'll be exposed, ashamed. The captors will be captured and humiliated. They're powerless Powerlessness, long word, will be exposed. And this theme shows up a lot. And remember, this is a, a taunt. It's a taunt by the victorious God. Look what he says in verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. But you catch the sarcasm behind the perhaps. Maybe your magic will save you. Maybe not. The implication, verse 13, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. This particular idol and focus here, it's, it's false religion. It's astrology and exaltation of knowledge. The idea that we can discern knowledge from the heavens. But the, the emptiness, the condemnation, it could apply to any idol because no idol can control our fate. No voodoo doll, no anything else. We try to look at other idols in life. We talked about them before. Riches, wisdom, power, image, freedom, pleasure, acceptance. We look to these things because we refuse to take God on his terms. We refuse to believe that he possesses all the wisdom, the riches, the power, we refuse to believe that acceptance can be found in him or that his acceptance is worth it. In quietness and in trust is our hope. But we were unwilling, like Israel of old. So we pretend we can find knowledge in the heavens. I suppose we can, right? But not through astrology. Because God has taken the wisdom from on high and he's brought it down to earth in the form of a person whose stories and teachings are recorded in a book. He has revealed himself in concrete form. He's brought near his salvation to us. But we still look elsewhere. And what will those alternative saviors profit us? Will they last? Verse 14, behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Not a bonfire, but a consuming fire. That's what God is for those who flee from him. And then verse 15, such to you are those with whom you've labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, 
each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Babylon had turned false religion into a business. Learn your fortune, your future for $5. And by the way, help us build a new temple too. Who knows what it was like exactly, but side note, I... There's this one TV show I really enjoyed where a guy would disprove psychics, but that's for another day. As I said, religion was a business for Babylon. Still a temptation for anyone today. But once Babylon got stomped out, nobody wanted what she was selling. That's what's going on in verse 15. And so her buyers wandered about and none of them were able to save her. And where you might ask is the good news in all that. I think the good news comes in the illusions and in the contrasts. What do I mean? Verse 14 compares idols and idolaters to stubble, stuff that's quickly burned up. Reminds me of Psalm 1. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, stubble, neither one is very substantial. Easily confused, easily consumed, easily blown away. Not substantial. But who is the blessed man of Psalm 1? Blessed by someone else. Blessed and well watered like a sturdy tree that endures through the winter, the ups and downs, who doesn't wither. The blessed man doesn't do anything spectacular. Unless being known by the Lord is spectacular. I think it might be. And verse 14 also talks about this stubble being burned up and consumed. That reminds me of Psalm 2, starting in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Still don't hear the good news? It's at the very end of verse 12. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I said it earlier, his refuge is always better than his wrath. And he offers refuge to all who turn from sin and turn to their savior. All that Babylon symbolized, her pride, her self-absorption, her self-deification, her self-made religion, it'll come to an end one day. And what will remain? Those who take refuge in God's son. Those who will dwell at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And the pleasures and might and power that are there will dwarf whatever Babylon and this world have to offer. Yes, Isaiah 47 is intense, but it's intended for God's enemies so that God's people will flee from the false security and find true refuge in their Savior. You don't have to fear this chapter because if you've taken shelter in him, then you'll never have to experience this. Let us pray. God, you are good and what you do is good. Would you continue to be good to us? Help us hide this truth in our heart. And would you hide us in your shelter? Would you help us to take refuge in you through your son, our savior? In his name we pray, amen.